Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing and advertising. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today I've caught Stephen Colgan. Award-winning author, artist, public speaker and trainer, Stephen's career started with 30 years in the Met Police Service where he landed up in Scotland Yard's intriguingly named The Problem Solving Unit. As creative thinkers go, he's up there with the best. Using lollipops to deal with noisy, rowdy nightclubbers was but one ingenious idea Stephen introduced. He's given TED Talks on the topic of problem solving amongst a plethora of other top gigs including the Edinburgh Festival, Latitude, and one of our favourites that we've touched on in a previous episode, Nudge Dog. And that's not even to mention 11 years as one of the writers and head elves of the award-winning BBC TV series QI. Quite an intro. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Hello. I'm just trying to figure out if I'm worth more points than Pikachu. <laughs> Uh, the one thing I will say is no one is likely to walk off a cliff trying to find me, are they? Which I think someone ha- happened to some Pokemon that's the last year. Let's limber up with our quick fire questions. So, oh, Stephen, right, okay. coffee or tea? Tea. Football or rugby? If I had to choose rugby. Pen or paintbrush? Uh, pen. Fact or fiction? Ooh, tricky one. Uh, probably fact. Cornwall or London. Cornwall, I'm a Cornishman. What else am I going to say? <laughs> Starsky and Hutch or the Sweeney? Oh, probably the Sweeney. Stephen Fry or Sandy Toxvig? I'm going to be controversially and say Sandy Toxvig. Really? Yeah, well, I've worked with both. And, um, you know, they're both lovely, lovely people. I, I can't stress enough what lovely people they are. But Sandy's lovely and also incredibly huggy and supportive. <laughs> she's, she's, just, she's just a wonderful... She, she walks into a room and the place lights up. Yeah. She's marvellous. Absolutely marvellous. Now, it's hard to know where to start. So if we go back to the beginning, can you tell us what was your first ever job and what was your first proper job? Ah, uh, right. Okay. Well, my first ever job, I mean, apart from the usual sort of, um, you know, paper rounds and being sacked, delivering the milk first thing in the morning because you can't get up in time. Um, they used to allow that in the old days, you know. They used to, because I'm old. Uh, they used to, I used to do a milk round before school. That meant getting up at five, delivering milk, and then going to school and trying to stay awake. Yeah, I got sacked for not getting up in time. Um, <laughs> now the first proper, well, the first job probably was working in a restaurant. I used to work in this Italian restaurant uh, back in my native Cornwall um, for a chef who at one time was Michelin starred, and he cooked for Mussolini. <laughs> People like this, this Italian wow. chef. But he'd, he'd retired, he'd moved to Cornwall, then got bored and opened a restaurant that was far too good for the locals because all they wanted was pasties <laughs> and fish and chips. And he was doing lobster thermidor. And they was, what have you done to this lobster, boy? <laughs> what, what's all this muck on this lobster? What have you done to boy? You know, it was a bit like that. But because I was interested in, in how food worked, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in everything, but I was, I was fascinated. I, I went from being basically a bottle washer to actually being his sous chef for about a year. Um... But the first proper, proper, proper job was actually being a police officer in London. And how did that happen? You know, the usual reason, the usual noble reason people <laughs> join the police. It was a, a bet. Um, <laughs> around my 18th birthday, uh, my dad, my late dad, who was a, a detective who specialised in homicide, you know, a lot of that in Cornwall. Um, you say that, he was away from home a lot because there were quite a few stabbings and beatings and things like that in Plymouth. 
which even though it's over the border, as we say in Cornwall, over the border in England, um, that's that was 80 miles away from where we lived because we were right down the southwest end of Cornwall, sort of Penzance sort of area. So, um, yeah, he was he was a police officer, very good at dealing with homicides and got to about 18. I buggered up most of my school career, uh, didn't have many exams under my belt. In recent years, I've started to realise that maybe I've got a little, I'm somewhere on the autism spectrum. I don't know, but I just got so bored with teachers who were teaching me stuff I already knew or subjects that were taught in such a terrible way that I thought, you know, none of this is ever going to be useful to me, that I, I was a bit disruptive and I didn't get the exams. So all my friends were starbursting out of Cornwall because that's what happens in Cornwall. Well, it still happens today, I think, but certainly back in the 70s. You saw your careers teacher and it wasn't, what's your career path? It was, what's your plan for getting out of Cornwall? And we all did. And all my best friends were going to London, um, going to polytechnics and technical colleges and things before they all became unis. And um, I was stuck in Cornwall, didn't know what to do. And he took me out for a pint for my 18th birthday. And we got the desultory chat. What are you going to do with your life, boy? Oh my God, you've got no future. You got, you're got going to end up working at, at Flambard's amusement park during the summer every day. And um, somehow during the evening, I obviously drank enough uh, to agree to a £50 bet that I could survive six months of being a cop. The hilarious thing was he'd actually taken the time to drunkenly stagger away from the party, uh, type up a little contract, get me and him to sign it, and then get it witnessed on the back as if that gave it any kind of sort of legality. But yeah, I thought, well, why not? I, I, all my best friends are leaving and going to London. I, I did manage to get a placement in an art college, and I did manage to get a placement at a catering college, but I'd missed the tranche for that year, so I was going to have to wait 12 months before I could go. So I thought, I've got a year to waste. And all my best friends are in London. I'm going to try and go to London. So I applied to join the Met Police. They were obviously desperate because they let me in. <laughs> um, I went to London in right at the beginning of 1980 and almost immediately fell in love with London because, you know, being a, a young Cornish lad living down the far end of Cornwall, I mean, well, a perfect example is, is we didn't get bands in Cornwall. And there are no, no rock bands. Punk missed us completely. I had no idea punk had even happened because it was all, <laughs> you know, the Sex Pistols were banned on the radio and, and no bands came to Cornwall. If you wanted to see music, it was either folk or, or sort of, you know, close harmony male voice choirs and things like this. That, that, was, that was live music in Cornwall in the 70s. So the very fact I came to London and in my first week got to see The Stranglers live. and uh, Yeah, things like that. Yeah, it was amazing. Um, and Ian Jury, Ian Jury and the Blockheads and, and bands like this. I thought, I like this. And of course, I had wages in my pocket, you know, like I, a proper, proper decent wage. And six months sort of became 30 years. Um, wow. I ended up staying there. Did you get your 50 pounds? I did. I did. And I went and bought a really, what I thought was a very good electric guitar at the time, but it turned out to be a load of rubbish. But nonetheless, <laughs> 50 quid, I mean, 50 quid when the bet was first made in 79 was pretty substantial. I mean, for you youngsters listening, in 1979, 50 quid would have bought you, you know, most of Lancashire. I and mean, that was a. <laughs> That was a lot of money in 79. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, looking back on it, Dad was obviously a pretty good problem solver himself because he got this hairy, partially bearded job out of his house <laughs> and into, into a career, you know. So uh, good on him. Did you feel tricked? I did once I figured it out. <laughs> but by that time, I was enjoying myself. You know, I, I felt as if I was achieving something. I was, I was, I liked my new lifestyle. And um and I thought, well, no, I, I can I can cope with having been had, because it's actually been to my benefit. You know, it's 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 like all the best 
I suppose like all the best behavioral science and all the best nudges, you know, it's when you nudge someone and they don't realize they've been nudged, but when they have been nudged and they do realize they don't mind because it's something they might have done anyway. Yeah. Know? So it's, uh, yeah, he, he was a smart man, my dad. But on the other end of the spectrum to being nudged, you had your drill sergeant, Sid Butcher. Oh, lovely Sid. Lovely Sid, yeah. Yeah, well, um, I mean, anyone listening to this who has ever been a police officer in the Met will probably remember Sid Butcher. He was um, the drill pig, as he was known. Um, Sid used to come out every morning. We, we used to have to – it was it was very – based on military lines. I mean, we're, again, we're going back to the late 70s, early 80s here. And Hendon Police College or Training School or whatever they used to call it was was – it was still run on very much military lines. A lot of the people who joined the police at that time were, were ex-army and uh, or ex-navy or uh, you know armed forces generally, and um, and there was a lot. You know, it, it wasn't co-ed. You know, males and females were separated into different tower blocks, accommodation blocks. Um, it was morning parade where you had to come marching out in your classes and line up in a row and be inspected, uh, which never went well for me because I'm I'm a bit of an odd shape. I've got quite short legs and a really long body and a massive head. Um, as someone in the clothing stores described me, he says, you've got the same body proportions as fucking sooty the glove puppet, mate. <laughs> um, which, which, which really didn't help me. I didn't get a police helmet until literally two weeks before. I mean, I was there for 16 weeks doing basic training. And I, I didn't get a helmet until like two weeks before I was due to leave because they couldn't find one big enough. Um, eventually, the, for, the, for the school photo, you know, the sort of class photo, they loaned me a display model one, an oversized display, you know, like... Uh, Boots and eggs, sometimes see a giant perfume bottle, you know, which yeah. is the display thing advertising. Yeah. Well, I had the giant display helmet um, sort of nailed to my head. But I, I, even then, I had to tip my head right back to stop it going over my head. It sort of came over and made me look a bit Darth Vader ish. Um, but yeah, it was. Um, Sid didn't like me. I, I always looked scruffy. I never, yeah. never looked right. Um, but saying that, in later years, uh, when he actually retired as a, as a police officer, he ran, there was like a little shop, like a student shop on the campus and he used to run that and just terrify all the customers. And I, I do hear stories. I can't substantiate them. I mean, Sid's dead now, so I can't really libel him. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> um, but I did hear stories about people being shortchanged, you know, accidentally and, and being just too terrified yeah. to point, to point <laughs> out the fact that they didn't have quite enough change. He was, he was a fearsome animal with our Sid. And there was a Welsh recruit that said something quite daring to him once. Is that right? Oh God, you may. He must have, yeah. Yeah. It was, um, well, Sid's favourite thing, he used to walk along with a, a swagger stick, you know, one of those sort of pacing sticks that the regimental sergeant majors used to walk along with. And every so often he'd come and he'd sort of flick your whistle chain and say, tuck it in, boy, or, you know, shine your shoes or do this sort of thing. And he came up to this one little Welsh recruit who predictably was called Taff Evans. <laughs> what else? It was, yeah. um, uh, and he just he just poked him in the chest and he just looked at his uniform. He had, he'd, he'd somehow picked up some dust or something all over his uniform. He'd obviously brushed against something on the way to parade. And he just poked him in the chest and said, there's a bit of shit on the end of this stick, boy. And the little Welsh voice went, it's not at my end, sir. <laughs> which, is, which is incredibly brave. And, and I wonder to this day how he had the guts to say it. But um, but yeah, yeah, good Lord. And and then how did you go from, from being poked with sticks then to the problem-solving unit? Well, very simply, I, I mean, I thought I was only in the police for six months. Right. That's the first thing to, to put down there. So I wasn't terribly interested in, in in being you know top of the class or the shining example and that sort of thing i mean i didn't want to cause any trouble i'm not naturally a troublemaker um i didn't want to sort of rock the boat particularly but because i that was always in the back of my mind well if they sack me or well, i'm going in six months anyway 
when you did hear things that didn't sound right, and I'm not talking about things, you know, where police officers are, are do, behaving wrongly or anything, but just, just little things about the training or what policing is for and that sort of thing. It just didn't ring true. I, my, my natural curiosity and my natural um, critical thinking faculty makes me ask questions, which they don't expect. As I said, it was very military lines. You know, it was, a, you know, it was like, when I tell you to jump, your only answer should be how high, Sarge. It was that sort of attitude. You were still saluting senior officers back in those days, which you don't see cops doing anymore. Um, and they didn't expect someone to say, why? And the first thing I remember, the very, very first thing was that we had to learn some things by rote. And one of them was the very first, um, if you like, mission statement for policing. When, when Sir Robert Peel first set up um, the Metropolitan Police, he got some people to sit down and draft out a, a thing which was basically the, the, you know, what policing is and what it's for. That was the document. It was called the Primary Objects. And the very first thing we had to learn, and I can still quote it word perfect now, sort of 40 years later, is the primary object of an efficient police is the prevention of crime. The next, that of uh, detection and apprehension of offenders. Now, almost immediately, that that jarred with me because, of course, it's right. The first job of police should be to stop crime from happening. Because if you go out and take a representative sample of people in the street and say to them, would you rather the police were really good at catching burglars or would you rather not be burgled in the first place? Mm. No one but the weirdest sort of masochist is going to say, oh, yes, please, I'll have the burglary uh, for insurance purposes. or whatever. No, I mean, the point is people don't want to be the victims of crime. Of course they don't. Mm. And yet I spent 16 weeks, four months at training school doing my basic training, and there wasn't one picosecond assigned to prevention. Everything was about, after the event, everything was about, you know, Finding the finding the offender, working out what offence they committed, um, making a lawful arrest, uh, you know, appropriate use of force, courts procedure, writing your evidence. Also, everything was based on the assumption that the crime was going to happen. So I asked the question naturally. I said, well, "What about preventing the crimes from happening in the first place? Surely, if that's our primary object." And you know, and you see this still. You look at websites for police services all over the world. They will quite often quote that, you know, the primary object of efficient police. Um, and, they were, and what I got was, look, if you want to get out of here, you've got to pass these tests and you've got to pass this exam and you've got to do these practicals. You've got to do that. When you get out on the street, then you'll find out what real policing is all about and it'll all be covered there. Right. So I thought, all right, I shut up and I, I managed to get through training school. I survived my 16 weeks, passed my initial training, which is one of the times where it's quite easy to get rid of a cop. You know, it's, it's, you fail your training course, bang, off you go. Uh, you then start um, another year and a half of, of probation. Basically, you're on a two-year probation when you join the police. So I had another year and um, I'd done four months. So I had a training school. So I had, uh, what, one and, one year and eight months left actually doing the job on the street, at the end of which they could say, yay or nay, they were going to keep me. And I got out to my first division, which was Uxbridge in West London, which at that time covered Uxbridge, Ricelip, um and Hayes. Uh, and Northwood, Harefield, all that sort of area. And again, it was all everything. I mean, it's a very big residential area. It's a, it's a place where a lot of people retire to if they've worked in London. It's right on the outskirts of London in the old Middlesex. It borders Buckinghamshire and Hertfordshire, and it's very house heavy. It's heavy, heavily residential. Burglary was the big thing out there. Burglary was, was rife. It really, really was. But no one was doing anything about preventing burglaries. They were just spending all their time thinking, right, we've got some burglars we've got to catch. And almost immediately, I started thinking, well, is there anything we can do to reduce the number of 
burglaries. Now, bearing in mind, I'm, I'm very fresh faced. Um, I'm only 19 years old, you know, coming up to 20. Um, and and to be honest, there wasn't much I could do for the first for the first six months or so. I just had to sort of bed in, get used to my new colleagues, um, you know, get a few <coughs> uh, get a few arrests under my belt, just so I could get used to going to court and those sorts of things. And they were rubbish arrests; they were things like shoplifters and drunks and this sort of thing. Um, but once I sort of bedded in, I got the hang of what I was doing. Um, I then started talking about well, what do we do about prevention and this sort of thing? And Because, uh, again, when I go out, I'm naturally a chatty person. As you see, I haven't been able to shut my eyes <laughs> on it. Um, but I, I, I love people. I'm fascinated by people. And I would mm -hmm. go out on my beat, and instead of some cops just walking around sort of aimlessly for eight hours, I would talk to the public all the time. And what I got back from them was their concerns. Quite often it would be, are you our new local beat copper? Are you our new Bobby on the beat? You know, Are you our new community officer or whatever? I said, no, I'm just posted this beat for today. Oh, all right. We haven't had a proper beat call through. The problems around here, and the problems that they were highlighting were almost never the same as we were told right. were our priorities, mm. because our policing priorities were set by the Home Office, whereas the public had entirely different priorities. And sometimes yeah. their priorities were were things that traditionally aren't really to do with police, like like noisy parties or litter or, you know, Dog mess, dog toffee, as I came in. <laughs> it's a lovely expression. Dog eggs. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, things like that, because they were quality of life issues. And, yeah. and for, for people, they were more important than something that's a little bit more airy-fairy, like, you know, international drug trading <clears> and things like that, which they never came into contact with. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it was a sense of, you know, is there anything I can do to try and stop burglaries from happening? So I started reading um, various... Uh, different articles in, in magazines, things like that. And, and the turning point for me was when I read an article um, by a guy called Herman Goldstein, an American academic, who'd been proposing something in America called problem-oriented policing, where um, what he'd suggested was instead of policing being oriented around catching the bad guys, it's actually oriented around the problems that lead to bad guys being able to do bad things. And they tried it in a couple of places in America, um, in San Diego particularly, I remember, and they'd had extraordinary results. And I looked at this and thought, oh, what if we could do something like that this year? And it, it's just simple things at first, like going around and actually knocking on people's doors and saying, I noticed when you went to work today, you left your top window open. You know, shut it. You know, yeah. this is before the days when double glazing was everywhere. Now mm -hmm. it's everywhere. It's a lot easier. And you've got locks, which almost no one bloody <clears throat> uses. Um, yeah. but, but the point is that there were little things you could do and, and just also being visible and talking to the community and getting the community to talk to each other and things like that. And suddenly you'd start to notice that the burglary rate would drop. And that was the, that was the key to me. That was the interesting thing. I thought this, we can make a big difference like this, but the big problem I had is that, that my assessment, like my assessment of me as a police officer was based on countable objects. It was based on mm. the number of arrests I'd had, the number of stops and searches I'd done, the number of times I've been in court number of days I've been off sick, these sorts of measure, easily measurable objects. And all of those were to do with being reactive rather than proactive. Mm. And it's really hard to measure proactivity because, you know, it's easy to count how many burglars you've got. Yeah. It's not very easy to count how many burglaries you might have prevented and whether or not those burglaries would have taken place had it not been for your activity. And even to prove that it was your activity that caused the reduction, not other factors, you know, mm. such as the weather or... So I was constantly altering my own bosses. That was the big issue.
so yeah, that's how, that's how it kind of all started. Yeah, that makes sense though. That, that, that how how can you possibly measure something that's been prevented? It's really tricky. Existing? I mean, if you get, if you do an uh, an initiative to to reduce the number of pickpockets <clears throat> that are happening in the high street outside the window here, you can put an initiative on, um, and you can see a reduction in the number of people reporting the fact that they've they've had stuff stolen. But you've then got to be able to prove that it was your initiative that caused that. You've then got to prove that you know pickpocketing didn't take place when people just haven't come bothered to report it. You've also got to prove that, or at least be able to suggest that those things would have happened had it not been for your events, you know, because sometimes things do happen seasonally, you know, mm. certain events do happen seasonally, or it could well be that the, the most prolific pickpocket who works around here is on holiday. Yeah. You know, absolutely. there's all yeah, sorts yeah. of other factors. It could be bad weather. People haven't gone shopping. You know, it, it's, 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 it's not impossible but it takes a lot of work. Mm. And even back in the 80s, cops were overworked. They were stretched. There was mm. never, there's never enough policemen or policewomen. There's, there's never enough police officers. So, yeah, I was getting slapped by my... It was a weird thing. I was getting... Oh, thank you very much from the community. And I was getting... You're being a really bad cop from my own bosses. You know, it was it was a really <clears> tricky situation. But I thought, I'm going to be out of here. They're, they're gonna, they'll probably dump me after two years anyway. Yeah. I think it's, it, it's easy to find parallels between... That story and, and, and numerous others that I've read in, I was going to say, your book, in your in your books, the need for people to measure. There's a lot of murky measurements in our industry. And, and very frequently we're saying to our customers that just because something can be measured, it doesn't mean that it should. And oh, absolutely. Yeah. That it, it means anything. Equally, I th- you talked about being the Bobby on the beat and actually talking to the public. Again, there's, there's a significant parallel there. What we find in our world of marketing, if I can... Um, define it so broadly is that clients don't do the research they don't talk to in you know the equivalent they don't talk to the customer they just race ahead and, and do perhaps a tactic or or in your instance it could be post-crime they can start looking at what can they do how can they enforce them or how can they punish etc etc you see a lot in media as well i mean you'll know you know a, a new feature film will come out you'll go to the cinema watch it and think that's awful how did anyone commission that and you think did the people making this film ever consider going out and asking the public, mm. what do you think of this? Because it staggers me that, you know, something that's made, cost hundreds of millions to make can be so genuinely awful. Yeah, and, and, yeah. And, it, and it hadn't occurred to anyone that it was a bad idea to make the emoji movie. Yeah. Or, oh, that's my mouth. That's my mouth. But, you know, there, there are certain films you think, who on earth made that decision? And who did they speak to first? It, 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 things are sometimes, you know, significantly at odds with what with, with public feeling. And you think... Are you so isolated in your little ivory castle at Hollywood that you have really no idea what people actually want to see? I mean, I like people who take risks. Don't get me wrong. You know, it's a it's a great film came out last year called um, One Cut of the Dead. It's a Japanese film, and if you've never seen it, oh my goodness, go and watch it because it, it's like a very bad zombie movie. Well, it, it's like it's you're, you're, it's it's a bit more meta. That sounds like all zombie movies. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's it's a bit more meta than that. You're watching the making of a bad zombie movie. Okay. So you're seeing the director shouting at his cast, I want you to look more terrified. And, that's and then you realise that he's trying to get some realism in his movie. He's actually made it in a, a secret, a waterworks thing that the government had at one time. We were doing biological experiments and people do start turning into real zombies. So his film starts becoming a real zombie thing. But it still seems like the worst film in the world <laughs> until you get to 38 minutes in. And then there's the most. Oh, I'm going to ruin this for people who haven't seen this now. <laughs> so uh, we'll if, if you don't want to hear it, if you don't want to hear what happens, <laughs> don't listen for the next minute. But basically, you then get this incredible twist where you realise that 
you then the, the, the film winds back. The, the detect, you know, the, the the director's got some balls. I'll say that because he's made us sit through thirty eight minutes of some really bad filmmaking. But then suddenly the screen blanks out, and it goes, you know, so like, let's see, six months earlier, and you then see all the planning leading up, and you see everything that was going on in the background, and it becomes one of the most clever, brilliant, innovative films you've ever seen. It's now a film about a filmmaker. <laughs> watching a filmmaker pretending to make a film. It's just absolutely brilliant. But, I, you know, it's he took a real risk with that. And, and there's a lot of people who would have rented that from a, a, a DVD shop or downloaded it and got about 20 minutes in and thought, yeah. this is shite, and turned it <laughs> off. It's good that people do take risks, and it's good that people do try and do new things. But, you know, doing new things where there's a pretty good chance everyone's going to hate it. Mm. <laughs> Like the emoji move. No, no. Um, yeah, I, I do wonder. So, yeah, the, the, there's a lot of crossover between lots of different areas of work, certainly in terms of people not listening to the public, not listening to the user, as it were. And there was a few examples that you could talk over, but some of my favourites is, is, I've referenced it already, the lollipops outside nightclubs. Yeah. You fought gambling with wizards. Can you, can you, yeah, fought gambling. Well, everyone should fight gambling with wizards. <laughs> well, that, well, the thing is, I mean, all good. The, the idea of problem-oriented uh, policing, or indeed any kind of problem-oriented problem-solving. It's all about looking at the problem and obviously digging down until you come to the, the root causes of the problem. Rather than just constantly treat the symptoms of the problem, mm. you find the root cause. I mean, uh, there's good analogies there in medicine. You know, you can you can train hundreds of nurses and doctors, build clinics and hospitals, spend millions developing new drugs to tackle an illness, or you can find out what the vector of that illness is and eliminate it. You know, it, mm. it, 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 prevention is always better than cure. And with the work that we did, there had been some really excellent stuff done by a whole bunch of academics and police officers in trying to develop a set of simple tools that, that people could use to, an, to research and analyze a problem and work out the root cause. Uh, and one of them was this thing called the Problem Analysis Triangle, for want of a better name, which was come up with by two guys called Cohen and Felsen. And, and it, it basically says that you know, I mean, every good training course has got a triangle, hasn't it? You've got to have a triangle yeah. diagram. But, um, yeah, the, the idea of the, um, the the triangle is that there, there's three sides to it. There's the offender, the victim, and the location, or place in space and time. And you've got to have all those three bits for a problem to exist. And you can take one side out, but the problem can still exist. Like, for example, if, you're, if your issue is uh, pickpocketing, if you arrest the prolific pickpocket and take them out of the picture, which is what cops are doing traditionally, always going for the victim side, uh, the, the offender side. Yeah, so cops were always traditionally going for the offender side of the triangle. Take the offender out, that's fine. But there's still something about that location and there's still something about the behaviour of the victims that attracted a pickpocket to work in that area in the first place. Mm. So another pickpocket will just come in and complete the triangle again. You know, there's plenty of motivated offenders out there will just come in and, and complete the triangle again. So what you've got to try and do is break the triangle all three sides. With the, the Wizards business, um, we were dealing with street gambling in a North London borough where they were working. It was the three-card trick, you know, or, or, the, or the, the ball under the cups and that sort mm. of thing, you know, sleight of hand. <clears throat> um, and it was, it was, they were making a lot of money. They were making a lot of money off the public. Um, on the rare occasions we managed to catch anyone, they quite often had thousands of pounds in their pocket because wow. people, people were betting sometimes 20s, you know, 40s, 50 things like this on, on what appears to be a very simple game. You know, you've just got to guess one of three cards yeah. or guess under which cup the ball is. But, you know, there is a reason it's called the three-card trick for a reason <laughs> and not the three-card you have a good one in three chance of winning, you know. It's, and um, 
it was very hard to catch the offenders because they were very well organized yeah. minimal equipment it was usually you know, a couple of old beer crates with a with a piece of cardboard on top and and some playing cards they could just dump and run um proper del boy setup yeah proper del boy setup yeah. and and uh and they nearly always picked very open plan areas like big shopping centers where there's lots of escape routes and they also had you know they they had shills in the audience they had people who were who were basically you know oh I can win some money by playing your game. Here, have my ten pounds, and oh, I've won a hundred pounds. You know, just to g the audience up and get them going. And they had lookouts organised. It was very, very hard to catch them. Uh, very hard to change the location because the whole point of an open plan shopping centre is there are no obstructions to stop mm. people being able to run away. No gates and things like that. And we realised that the only bit of the triangle we could probably hit was the victim side, and that's all about behaviour. At the end of the day, we thought, is there something we can do to to affect? The victim's behavior in such a way that they realize that they're actually being fleeced that it's a trick and the obvious way was to show them that it is a trick and i i've been inspired by several different initiatives that had happened there was one in new york a few years ago where um an anti-street gown no washington sorry in washington with a with a uh, a bunch of magicians had lined up along the road doing the three card trick all day showing people that it was a trick and i thought that's a great idea we could maybe do something like that and uh, I thought, I need some magicians then. And a friend a friend said, oh, I've just seen one, a, a, like a table magician at a wedding. He's really good. I've got his number somewhere. So I, I met this lad. He was only 19 at the time. He's called Emmanuel Fire, or Manny Fire, F-A-J-A, Fire. Um, Strong lad. Yeah, he's a good lad. He was a good lad. He was only 19 at the time, but I met him in this coffee shop in, in oh, God, where were we? I can't remember now. But we sat opposite each other, probably about as far as you and I are apart now, like mm. three, four feet. And we did the three-card trick. We sat playing this, and we played for over an hour. And at the end of the hour, I hadn't beaten him once. <laughs> I hadn't picked the right card once. Yeah. And and I said, that's absolutely amazing. And he said, oh, yeah. He said, the minute, you, the minute you come to me, I've got your money. There is no way you will ever win. If I don't want you to win, you'll never win. Even if you, in a random 33.3% chance, happen to point to the right card, I'll palm it and switch it for another one by the time I turn the cards out. Uh, and I said, I said, how do you do it? And I said, it's, it's just, he said, it's all about distraction. He said, you know, if you're if you're good at distraction, you can get away with anything. He said, for example, I've stolen your watch. <laughs> <laughs> I looked at my wrist and my watch was gone. I can't even remember him touching me. I cannot remember in that hour, I cannot remember him even leaning over towards me and touching me. But he had undone my watch strap and he had taken the watch off my arm. Absolutely amazing. And um, and like I said, he was 19. Imagine what some of these guys were like who have been doing this for like 20, yeah, 30 practice. years. The high cut. And um, so I mean, he was a young lad, dark hair, big round glasses. He was halfway to Harry Potter. Anyway, so, <laughs> so and Harry Potter was very much the, the de rigueur at the time, was the big thing. So we, just to attract attention to him in a very busy open marketplace, we got him dressed up as a wizard. Stuck him between two big community support officers who didn't get beaten up by the guy. And he just stood there, bless him. I mean, he, we got a little bursary from the local authority to pay him for his time. But he stood there all day long for about eight hours just showing people that it was a trick. And, of course, the the, the, the card dealers just thought there's no point in us operating. And they, they moved. Mm. Now, the problem is you're just shifting the problem from one place to another. There, right. And it's not a sustainable solution. Unless you've got a wizard on scene every <laughs> single day, it's not going to work. But at least for those people who saw it that day, they will think twice about doing the three-card trick in the future. And we did film him. And the, the, the particular shopping center has, like, video walls with adverts on and things like that. We managed to blag a little bit of uh, advertising space, like a five, uh, like a, a one-minute slot. Mm. But we had film up of him showing them that it was a wasn't as effective as people seeing it for real life. But mm. um, but we got uh, we used that, and that was running constantly after the the actual event was over. 
Of course, the question people, a lot of people ask is, you know, you bunch of a lot of spoil sports. You know, it's only Del Boy having a bit of fun, earning a bit of money with his, with his slight heart. But it wasn't. These were organised gangs, and the money they were earning, which, like I said, could run into thousands, was all being pooled. It was all going back into crime families and crime syndicates mm. who were funding more serious things. You know, some things that maybe not so serious, like pirate DVDs, but also... You know, there were, there were there was drugs being involved in this, and at the time there was quite a strong rumour that there was some um, human trafficking going on with young girls being brought across from Eastern Europe right. um, to work in the sex trade. So, you know, anything you can do to stifle thousands going into that every day, if you can do that with a wizard, fantastic. Yeah, uh, and and very successful. I must say, we didn't dub those sirens on. We haven't added those sirens. That's my theme tune. <laughs> I walk into a, I got to walk into a room, you know. It's like, how we knew you were here. <laughs> Are there any other ideas which you're particularly fond of from your time with the problem solving unit? My favourite, just because I saw the the biggest the biggest return for the for the smallest amount of effort, was probably we were asked to look at a particular housing estate which had an emerging gang problem. Hmm. Now, there was a lot of problem at the time with, um, there was a lot of anti-youth sentiment at the time. Uh, we're talking sort of uh, late 90s, early 2000s. There was a, a lot of anti-youth sentiment to the extent that Bernardo's, I remember particularly Bernardo's, did a an advert where it had um, a bunch of guys sitting around a, a, you know, a country table, like a country kitchen sitting around a table. And they're going, yeah, they're vermin. You know, they, they breed like wildfire. You know, they've all they, they all have kids as soon as they can, and you know they mess the place up, and they do. Blah, blah, blah. And you think they're talking about foxes or something like that, and you then see them grab their shotguns and say, "We ought to go and deal with this." And they go out, they get in their car, and then drive on a housing estate, start shooting at groups of kids. It was a very powerful very advert powerful, yeah. done by Bernard Bernardos at the time. Mm. And what was most distressing about the whole advert was that every line spoken by the the actors was actually taken from the comments section of the Daily Mail on a story to do wow. with. Um, with youth yeah very powerful and we had at the time we had you know we had councils putting up um boxes on walls that emitted high-pitched sound uh, a thing called a mosquito uh which they were putting up by their shops which emitted a very high-pitched sound which you can't hear over about the age of 23 24 years old because there's a natural process called presbycusis which basically means that you're the range of frequencies you can hear as you get older narrows you can't hear the high frequencies you can't hear the lower ones um and um, what it meant is it only affected youth. So we're now effectively councils strapping a sonic weapon on a wall to stop kids from gathering together in certain places. And and what was so bad about it, uh, Liberty got really involved in trying to ban these things. And no, there was no police force in the country that that um, that would sign up and endorse their use uh, because it affected everyone. It basically labelled anyone under the age of about twenty four as a potential criminal. And when you saw you know, babies in prams and pushchairs going, ah, to the noise, and their grandparents are going, shut up, what are you whining at? Because the grandparents can't hear it. Yeah, of course. Uh, I'm so glad we don't see them anymore. But that's the atmosphere that was existed at the time. And um, it's a natural thing for kids to form into groups, to form into sort of like peer groups. It, it's a natural part of the healthy psychological move from being a child to being an adult, mm. where you separate from your parents and you become young adults yourselves. And kids have always gathered in groups. I did it when I was a kid. My parents did. And, and um, But suddenly this had become, and the label gang had been attached to the, these things as well. And a gang is a very different thing. And or just loosely applied to them. To, yeah, to yeah. Because of their you know, gangs and hood. It was all these emotive terms like gangs and hoodies and all yeah. this sort of thing was being applied. And, and there was the assumption that they were all carrying knives mm. um, and that everyone was at risk. Whereas 
as you undoubtedly aware, almost everyone who's a victim of knife crime, almost everyone is basically a young male. Uh, they're the victims of, of the crime of which they're accused of being the, the main perpetrators. Um, yeah, if you're a, if you're a middle-aged person, your chances of ever being stabbed are incredible. Well, I did some stats work on this recently for something totally different. I worked out that actually you're in more danger from a London bus than you are a knife. Mm. A lot more people die or get injured by London buses than uh, unless you're under a certain age, in which case the risk then bizarrely becomes about the same. Um, Daily Mail won't want a headline on that, right? Oh, of course they won't. No, yeah, Be, beware the buses. <laughs> um, but yeah, but we had an emerging um, genuine gang problem in the fact that you had an estate where everyone was living in silos and a lot of it was to do with language or uh, racial background. You know, it's, it's like it's like the black people didn't like the brown people, the brown people didn't like the white people and no one liked the gay people. And it was like everyone was living in little silos and no one was coming out on the street. And you had an awful lot of young men who had absent fathers and didn't have very good jobs and, and as a result had bonded together to become their own group. And because there was this fear of youth that was prevalent at the time, they kind of ruled the streets. <coughs> yeah, they kind of ruled the streets. And um, it all came to a head when they started getting into clashes with other gangs on the periphery of the estate, you know, this sort of these postcode gangs, as it were. And, um, and I ended up one of the young lads being lured off the estate by a, by a young lady and then being jumped by members of another gang and being stabbed to death. At that point, it started getting quite serious. It had been building and building, and it got quite serious. So they tried a whole series, the local police tried a whole series of the sort of things you normally do, like, you know, having the big uh, hooligan van, as they used to call it, you know, the van full of uh, TSG officers or local police officers in a, in a riot van driving around and trying to create some uh, sense of control in the streets and things like that, which they didn't. I mean, don't really, it wasn't a no-go zone. There are no no-go zones, despite what Donald Trump might tell you. But, you know, they'd say put extra police resources in there. But, of course, you can't do that all the time because there's other places that need police as well, and there's never enough. They tried doing an international food festival, which was very poorly attended. They tried converting um, an old, I think it was an old lock-up or an old something into a, or an old shop that had shut into a, like a community youth centre and someone burnt it down. It's like everything was failing. So they, they came to the problem-solving unit. I'll explain a bit more about what we did in a second. But they came to us and said, you know, have you got any suggestions? So we went along and looked at it. And a lot of the things, there's no single off-the-shelf solution, as you know. There's, there's never a, an off-the-shelf solution that fits all problems. And we looked at it and we thought it, it's probably going to need a, a sort of multiple response from lots of different agencies working together. But the one thing that struck us was, was how fragmented the estate was. There was no sense of community whatsoever. If you've got a strong sense of community, like you get in so like small villages, you know, you go to a small village in Nottinghamshire, mm. everyone knows everyone else. It's like when I grew up in Cornwall, I lived in a fairly large town. I lived in Penzance, I lived in Helston, fairly large towns, but everyone knew everyone. Mostly because people stayed in the area. There, were, there wasn't a commuter sort of society that you have in London and you do in larger cities. Uh, you know, I knew if I did anything wrong anywhere in Penzance, news of it would get back to my mum probably before I got home because yeah. there was a, there's a sort of bush telegraph that goes from house to house to house to house. That kind of um, community um, unity is, is incredibly powerful. And wherever that exists, crime is generally very low. And uh, I know I was in Brighton and Hove a couple of years ago speaking at the Brighton Fringe or the Brighton Festival. And they had started then, and I, I don't know what the result is, I must find out. But they'd started an initiative at that event to try and make Brighton and Hove the first city in the UK where everyone knows their neighbour. 
Simple as that. And all they were asking the people to do was to know the neighbours either side of them. Because if you're looking out for your neighbours, you're all immediately stronger because there's, there's, there's three households now working together. Mm. But if they know the neighbours on either side of them, and they know you've got this, again, this giant Venn diagram where everyone knows everyone else. And we wondered whether we could strengthen the community there by trying to get people to work together. And it was very difficult because there were language problems, as I said, the language barriers. Uh, there were some people who just didn't want anything to do with the police. There were some people who just didn't want to show out or, or you know, because they said, well, if I'm seen to be doing anything that's, that's working against the problems we've got in this estate, then my house is going to get firebombed or I'm going to get, you know, somewhere I'm going to get some retribution. So trying to find points of commonality between people on this estate was really tricky. And then one day we were, we were out walking with a couple of the local police officers and thinking, yeah, there must be something they've all got in common. There must be something that would help bring this estate together a little bit more. Because in terms of weight of numbers, you know, there were like 800 people living on this estate and we only got a troublesome gang of about 30 kids. You know, there must be a way that the weight of numbers can beat them if we can bring them together. And um, I still to this day, I can't remember who first said it, but someone happened to point out that if we're looking for commonality, almost everyone we can see on the street at the moment has got a dog. And we're going, dogs? That's an interesting thing because dogs are a really good bridge. You know, if if I saw you as a complete stranger, if I saw you across the street and you've got a, you know, like a, I don't know, a St. Bernard or something, mm. I kind of go, wow, your dog's amazing. What's his name? You know, and, and I've got a, I've, it's kind of given me permission to talk to you. Yeah, yeah. Whereas if you're standing on the side of the street without a dog and I come up and go, hello, you go, oh my God, I've got the moon. Um, what does he want? He's, <laughs> either, he's either after money or he's, <laughs> he's still doing the tickle. Yeah. Um, sorry, that was a very bad mental health issue there. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> but no, it's, um, yeah, it, it, they give you a permission to talk to people. They're, they're, they're an excellent bridge, dogs. And we thought, well, people with dogs tend to quite often talk to each other. They've got something in common. And again, I can't remember who it was. It was one of us said, dog show. So that's what we did. We, we organised with the local police. We, we organised a dog show. We got um, Battersea Dogs Home involved, because I wasn't that far away. We got the People's Dispensary of Sick Animals, the PDSA involved. We got... Um, uh, the police dog training school came down with some of the puppies and they also brought down some well-trained police dogs to do demonstrations of how they could bring a suspect down, you know, running and ah, biting their arm, dragging them to the ground, and jumping through fiery hoops and all this sort of thing. And we had a few police horses there and things like that. And and people came out. I mean, first of all, because there was a lot of, a lot going on, people felt safe to come out of their houses and see what was going on. Secondly, it was those little moments. Like I remember walking past this, quite a tall sort of six foot two six foot three black lad i mean the the, the color of his skin isn't relevant to me but it's relevant to the story but he was about six foot two six foot three black lad with a with a um a sort of a staffy cross and he was standing there being reprimanded by this this four foot ten woman who must have been in her 80s with a yorkie on a lead and she's going well, your dog's overweight what are you feeding him oh look at him he's a right pudgy little pig and she's going you go well i feed i feed her this i feed her, i feed, i feed him this and he says, yeah, but you want it. No, that's the wrong sort of food. You need to be doing this. And he's then getting out a piece of paper saying, what do you call it? No, Ukunuba. How do you spell that? And I suddenly realized that these two people, because of their own individual prejudices and, and beliefs and, and stuff they've been fed by the, the sort of bad media, these people would have crossed the street to avoid each other in any other circumstance. Because she would have seen him as a threat and he would have seen her as an interfering old biddy who's probably going to, you know, do the same now. Yeah. And and here they were, the, the common the point of commonality being dogs. They're actually there to the point where she feels empowered enough to have a go at him over the fact his dog's too fat. And that was the chink in the armor. That was the first chink. You thought, oh my God, this yeah. is making a difference. Mm. Now, I can pretend the estate turned around 
um, immediately overnight. There were a lot of other initiatives which we'd, as I said at the beginning, we knew, we knew that a lot of agencies needed to be involved. So we got involved with the schools, we got involved with the social services, we got involved with the service providers, you know, gas, electricity and all that sort of thing. We got better street lighting, but it was all sorts of uh, initiatives took place. There was a redesign of some of the central areas where it was at least easier to jump people because there were little hiding spots and things like that. They were all opened up. There were communal gardens put in, which people came and started using, growing their own veg and things like that. And I went back and visited just before I retired, which was probably about five or six years after that initial dog show. And it still wasn't, believe me, it still wasn't the Elysium Fields. It still wasn't a place I would necessarily want to live. Mm. But it was a bazillion percent better. And people were walking around. You know, the streets were empty when I first went there. They were walking around. They were talking to each other. There were people working on the gardens. And, like, and, and a genuine sense of community had formed. And ultimately, of course, the crime rate had dropped. I can't remember the exact figure now because I've got so many figures and so many initiatives in my head, but I'm pretty sure it was it was very substantial. It dropped by something like 60, 70%. So, yeah, just from a dog show. But that that whole thing about getting, you know, working on that side of the triangle that deals with the victims and looking at the location is often much more powerful for reducing crime than just working on the offender side and catching the bad guy. It really is. But it took a while for that message to bed in. I spent probably the first probably spent about the first 15, 16 years of my 30 years in the police, sort of swimming the wrong way up the stream, constantly being told I was lazy. I can't tell you how bad my reports are, but how bad a cop I am because I hadn't arrested enough people. But that, that pressure for numbers was a, was a bad thing. I mean, I, I, I honestly, to God, in the early 80s, I remember police officers thinking, oh, God, I haven't, I haven't stopped enough people. I didn't have many arrests this month. Because you can't, well, you can manufacture an arrest, I suppose, but most cops are pretty good. They're not going to arrest someone who doesn't deserve to be. Um, so you can't manufacture an arrest. So you had to show you'd still been working hard. Mm. Well, I've been out looking for arrests, so I must have stopped more people. And, of course, that wound the public up, because stop and search is fairly, yeah, it, it's an important tool. And when it's used properly, it, God knows how many crimes it prevents. But if it's overused, it just winds the public up, because most of the people you're stopping are good people. But these cops, they were saying, oh, God, I've stopped enough people this month, but I haven't got enough of my figures. They were literally writing down names from telephone directories and, and off gravestones and things like that, just to prove, because they knew no one had ever had the time to go and check they were legit. Just to meet these figures, these ridiculous, arbitrary figures. Yeah. Whereas, you know, I'd get a slap for not having enough, but I'd actually maybe but, reduced burglary in the street by 30%. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. It's, And you'd help put those bridges into communities. Which is, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and as I said, it was, it was only when I was about halfway <clears> through my police career that the tide started turning a bit. A lot of the stuff that had been going on in America with Goldstein and and others had, had shown some real, real effects. And um, even a conference started, I think, called the POP Conference in the USA had, had kicked off, which was rewarding police agencies for, for doing these sorts of initiatives and getting reductions in crime and increasing public safety and a sense of safety by doing these, um, basically, you know, research and analysis exercises by doing their job properly. Mm. And um, someone at Scotland Yard, uh, a guy called Tim Godwin, who at that time I think was a deputy assistant commissioner, he thought this was a fabulous thing. And he thought we ought to try using some of this in London. So he pulled together um, a team to put this together. He just basically thought, you know, I've heard stories about this person here and this person there. And, and uh, six of us were brought together we were given this terrible name on the problem-solving unit, which, you know, meant you did have people knocking on the door saying, I can give up smoking, or, you know, my wife doesn't understand me, and ha, 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 as if we'd never heard any of yeah. these things. And we did have a lot of people coming in, assuming, you know, so I've got a problem with this, and we just draw a box file off the wall, there's your solution. And that never worked that way. Every every problem needs an individual solution. But, um, yeah, we, we, we were basically based at Scotland Yard, 
but very quickly there was no room for us because Scotland Yard is, is always crammed full of offices. So we, we became a bit of a, a nomadic unit, even though we were under the Scotland Yard banner. We were in Soho Square at one time in central London. We were down on the South Bank, opposite the London Eye, in the place that's now actually Scotland Yard. But back then it was Territorial Policing HQ. Um, but we weren't in the office much anyway because we worked in teams of two and we were just parachuted into areas of London which had an existing problem that wasn't responding to traditional methods and asked to see if we'd come up with a solution. And that's what I did for the sort of latter half of my career. It's amazing. It is. It's, it's great. And then at the very end of that career, we were sort of seconded to the Home Office and became part of a Home Office group um, doing the same thing. Uh, we won some awards, which was quite nice. And that initial Home Office group, which initially was a mix of academics and police officers, um, gradually grew and grew and grew. The police officers were slowly but surely sort of nudged out of it, and it became the nudge unit. Mm. And um, that's now the Government's Behavioural Science Unit. Which is, is that growing and extraordinary? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's very under the radar. Mm. People don't realise it's very under the radar, but they do do things like um, it's like they did quite a lot of work towards this um, this new initiative of um, with donor cards of trying to get people to opt out of organ donor schemes and things things like that. Yeah, Mm. I mean, there's a lot of stuff I suggested at the time, which which is you know they haven't done yet. I mean, I I suggested a long time ago, and I found a lot of evidence for it. I think Rory's mentioned it before as well about. about how we we it'd be much more effective points on driving licenses if we took them away instead of yes. them on. It's so much more powerful. A loss aversion. Yeah, a loss aversion is an amazing yeah. thing. But God, trying to persuade people to change anything like that is a, <laughs> anything that involves a major change in the way you do things. Yeah, we've always done it that way. is is always hard, and it's it's the slow moving tanker turning around. But I think it'll happen one day. Yeah. But yeah, there's a lot of stuff going like that with um, the nudge unit. It's interesting, you you mentioned about how growing up in probably, I suppose, a small village, and if you'd done anything wrong, your mum would hear about it. There's a, there's a great story, which I believe I first read, I think it's one of Dave Trott's. Uh, another hero, another stories. hero. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think it was a, just a litter problem within a particular village of sweet wrappers, crisp packets being left around. And the owner of the sweet shop decided to start writing the names of the kids who had bought the sweets on the packet on the rappers, yeah, yeah. And very quickly it, uh, it, it, it ceased to be a problem for that exact reason another one I remember was when uh, I, think, I think it was in the London Borough of Harrow they installed bins in a particular park where the bins had a, a sensor and an mp3 player built inside and if you threw rubbish at the bin it went <laughs> and there were kids going around picking up other people's litter just to make it happen That's and I think on the South Bank as well they used to have ones that had monsters faces and if you put the rubbish in the bit, the monster, the monster, like that. I mean, all those little things, it's, it's reward, yeah, isn't it? It's you get a reward for doing something good. And, yeah. and as I said, you know, carrots always worth better. And they're yeah. often trivial things as well. And there's not enough It's the most stupid little things. Yeah, yeah. It's the most stupid little things. I mean, reward isn't just about money. It really isn't. And uh, I said, prevention is always better than cure and carrots are always better than sticks. Giving yeah. someone a little bit of reward for doing something good instead of a punishment when they're bad, it's nearly always more effective. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. We've got some listener questions, if, if I may. So, have you really Good asking morning. the general public for input on anything is notoriously fraught with danger, as we know, with Brexit and um, various boat names. But we, I've done it again. I told you I wouldn't mention Brexit. Brexit, but face, yeah, no, Brexit, face, yeah. <laughs> We've had a few in actually. We had a very similar question in from Joanna and Ollie, who essentially asked the same thing. So I'm going to slam them together and ask: Did you have much friction or, or pushback to some of the ideas that you proposed? Um, yes, <laughs> it's a simple answer. Yes, and and quite often from within our own organisation. Okay. Um, 
I, I tended to find, well, anything that involves money, you'll always get friction and pushback anyway. So the minute you start saying, I want some money to do this, um, I sometimes got around that by involving other agencies who had money. And um, it's like, it's like the, a lot of supermarkets have community funds, for example, you know, the big supermarket chains, you know, and if you and a lot of companies do as well, you know, you'll see you'll see on roundabouts all over the place. You'll see this roundabout sponsored by such and such mm. and pretty flowers. You'll find, you know, this this such and such sponsored, you know, this amateur dramatic production sponsored by such and such estate agents. There are people out there who've got money they want to spend and they want to be seen to be doing stuff for the community. And I thought that's a fund we can tap into. So getting, you know, um, you know, a big supermarket like Tesco, I have to say, whatever you think of Tesco, we're really good at coming up with money when I wanted to. Mm. Um, I got them involved in a lot of building youth shelters and places for kids to gather where they, you know, you could see them, they could see, they, they felt safe and you gave them somewhere that was theirs, um, you know, and stopped them hanging around the high street or hanging around places you didn't want them to be. Mm. So yeah, there was always friction when there was money involved. Sometimes there was what I call selfish friction. It's like the CID. The CID do a sterling job in all police forces. Of course they do. But you try and put some sort of initiative in place which is going to reduce crime, even though they kind of, of course they do, they're human beings. They want there to be fewer crimes. But the point is that if you get rid of all the burglaries in an area, you don't need the CID anymore mm. <laughs> to investigate. So there was a little bit of, because, you know, most people, they join the police and they, they walk around the street or they drive around in their car with a big funny hat on and things like that. And they don't want to be doing shifts for 30 years. Mm. Um, so they want to they want, want to specialise. They want to go into CID. They want to go into Mountain Branch. They want to go into, you know, Royalty and Diplomatic Protection. You know, and, and no one wants to stay a beat copper for 30 years because even though it's nice being out on the street, it's being with the public, that sort of thing, the shift work is punishing. It's, it's really damaging to your system. Plus, of course, when you, you know, you're, get involved with a partner and maybe you have kids and that sort of thing. You want some time at home or weekends and things like that, you know. So so yeah, if you get rid of all the crime, certainly in specific areas, you're going to upset or create a moral quandary for certain people. Because if you get rid of the burglaries and there is a specific burglary squad, mm. the burglary squad's gonna get disbanded very quickly. Mm. And they don't want to have to put the funny hat back on and walk out on the street. So sometimes I did, I did get some friction within my own organization. Not terribly heavily, but there was, there was a general reticence to do some things sometimes. Mm. If if they felt that there was their their sort of public duty went against their own personal um, needs, which I guess is human instinct. Yeah, human and instinct. and there was also friction in the fact that we were the police. I mean that mm. would that would almost immediately cause problems. I remember I went up to in my later years when I was sort of the Home Office part of it. I myself and another guy got sent up to Scotland to teach some of this stuff to the Scottish police forces. At the time, there were a lot of different Scottish police uh, services and they, and they were they were going to be coming together to become the one Scottish police service. Um, and they wanted some corporacy across training and things like that. We, we were asked by the Scottish Parliament to come up and um, do some training. And I know that when we were doing some work in some places, the polis, as they call us out there, very distrusted. They didn't want anything to do with us. And um, even trying to get the community involved to come into a public meeting, you'd be sitting there looking at a big empty hall and no one was there. But there are ways around that. I mean, what, what we would do then, a bit like the dogs mm. I was mentioning earlier, there are other ways you can bridge between the police and the community. And one of the things we used a lot up there uh, was the fire service, fire and rescue service, which in Scotland is very, very involved in community stuff. 
Um, to the extent that quite a few of the fire stations and the fire headquarters were running youth clubs and sort of citizenship schemes and things like this. Mm. Amazing work they were doing up there. But, you know, particularly kids who are very distrustful of the police, they would talk to a fire officer in a way that they wouldn't talk to a police officer. Mm. So we could ask the fire service to go and talk to them. And they would talk to them because, you know, they're kind of heroic figures anyway, you know. And more importantly, they don't have the powers police have. They're not going to arrest you for what's in your pockets. They're not going to seize your moped or your alcohol or whatever. Yeah. Um, so they were, they were seen as more trustworthy. So you could use them as a bridging agency between the public and, and the police. And that worked. That worked a treat. And like I said, in, in Scotland, they really have it joined up up there. It's really, really good. Mm. In a way that not many places in England did when I was doing the job anyway. It might be different now. I don't know. But from everything I read from serving police officers, things have just got worse, particularly mm. because of budget cuts and staffing levels. And there's probably more officers going off sick with stress or leaving the police. I mean, it was unheard of when I was in for someone to leave before 30 years and get your pension. Mm. Leaving in droves now. It's yeah. awful. It's terrible. Mm. Well, talking about current then, um, we've had a question from Matt who asks, is there a current problem in society that you would love to get stuck into solving given the chance? <laughs> well, I should say before I say anything else, I've been out of the police now for nine years. Mm. And uh, during that time, I've spent a lot of time, you know, writing funny things for Stephen Fry to say or, or writing well. books and things like that. And um, and as a result, it's I'm a bit out of the loop now as to what is actually going on. From a personal perspective, as a member of the public, yeah, there are certain things that, that are... They are an issue for me. I mean, I, I'm, I, I take a very sort of middle ground attitude to drugs. I mean, I, as far as I'm concerned, drugs should all be... Um, there was a guy called Dr. David Nutt a few years ago, looked at all the drugs that are currently available on the market, legal or illegal, and ranked them in, in terms of the harm they do to society. And the ones at the top were mostly the legal ones. It was things like alcohol and tobacco yeah. and things like this. Whereas very, 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 very long way down the line were things like cannabis. Mm. Um, I would, I would like to see a, a total um, revamping of that whole uh, rating system to look at, you know, um, harm to society. And, and all right, it, you can't just overnight ban alcohol. Of course you can. I would be very upset for one. Mm-hmm. Um, but alcohol, I mean, that, that, was, that was an interesting one because it was a real binge drinking culture at the time I was in the police. Mm. It seems to have gone. It has. Young yeah. people seem to be quite bored with it now. But yeah. they will always find a replacement. And yeah. what I'm finding now is... It's things like, you know, whippets, the little um, laughing gas cylinders mm. that you get from gas guns. You know, there's almost no car park you can go into now or, or uh, you know, the woods mm. or anything like that where you won't find these little silver cylinders. Mm. Now, they're not per se terribly harmful. I mean, people have been knocking on, knocking back laughing gas since the Victorian era when they used to have they used to have laughing gas parties in the Victorian mm. era, you know. Um, it's, you know, nitrous oxide per se isn't a terribly damaging drug if you do lots of it yes it does cause some brain damage but you'd have to do an awful lot of it and these kids are basically just cracking a couple of cylinders having a giggle and then moving on mm. but of course there's the litter issue there, there, there's, there's that you know I, there was one i think it was hull council picked up over a million canisters last year um you know if you ban something someone will find something else you know they clamped down very hard on drugs in the 80s and everyone went glue sniffing you know there will always be something so what would be nice is is better education programs about the harms of these things uh, rating them appropriately according to the actual harms they do. Um, I find that, you know, I, I, in my new world, I mix with a lot of young sort of executive types like yourself, and I'm staggered by the amount of cocaine and heroin is, is, mm. is existing in these industries. And they talk about it openly as if it's, well, it's just part of the business. Mm. You know, um, having met an awful lot of proper heroin and cocaine addicts, you don't want to go down that path. It's horrible, horrible stuff. 
Um, That's hard to and, and you know, everyone, so everyone thinks they can handle it, but yeah. they can. And the, and the point is, at the end of it, you're going to get other victims other than the drug users themselves. You get the you know the families, you get the knock-on effect to the NHS, which is already stretched to its limits. Um, you know, so it would be nice to have some sort of sensible, joined-up, realistic, and not emotionally driven or commercial, uh, commercially driven attitude towards intoxicants. That would be great. Whether I'd be able to make any difference to that, I have no idea because there's so many vested interests. Yeah, I did a, I did a thing recently for the Welcome Foundation. I did a, I did a six-part sort of essay thing on intoxicants. And when you start digging down and looking at the history of this thing, like, like for example, how um, cannabis became, uh, I'm not advocating cannabis, but I'm saying if you look at its history and how it came to be criminalized, it's 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 like the Brexit bus all over again. It's mm. oh, we mentioned Brexit again. No, but the point is, it it, it was a howl in the jar. <laughs> it was a whole campaign of lies and disinformation about how much harm this stuff. You know, the reefer madness generation and the fact that the the people who felt threatened by it were the people who had the money and the power because they thought that hemp production would challenge the cotton industry. They thought it would also challenge the paper industry. So yeah, people like you know Randolph Hearst and people like this writing huge leaders in newspapers about, you know, the damage that they did and the fact that it, it drove the, you know, Mexican workers wild and they, you know, they'd attack your wife and children. And I mean, it was, it's a staggering, I said, misinformation campaign about the actual real harms of cannabis mm. without ever mentioning any of the benefits, of course, in terms of medicinal use. So it became banned and tobacco didn't. And um, even though tobacco does endless more harm Absolutely. than cannabis. So it's, it would be nice to see a reevaluation of that sort of thing. Well, vested interest is, is, is certainly another parallel we could we could Ooh, make with marketing yes. and the, the digital duopoly, Google and Facebook sitting on certain boards of certain organisations. And oh and yes, there. I mean, it's, it's no different in some ways um, to the gambling industry, but that's another podcast in itself. I think. Absolutely. If you want another example of, <laughs> yeah. a, of an intoxication, my goodness. Yeah. Uh, Paul Barnes asked. This is a final list of the question. What is the most Quite interesting thing you uncovered in your time on QI. Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I, th I think the thing that fascinates me most always is our relationship, our, our view of time and, and when things happen in history. It's like there was, there was a, a, a article, magazine article I was reading the other week. They talk about uh, mortality mathematics and the fact that you... Because because everything is viewed through the through, through the lens of well it's history it's in the past you sometimes don't put these things side by side you think you know what well, when did the cowboy era take place the wild west when did that take place and when you actually look at the historical dates you realise it's happening at the same time as Victorian London yeah and that suddenly makes it feel really weird because you've been brought up on a diet of John Wayne and cowboy yeah, films yeah. So different film think, altogether I think, my, my kid, you know and and then you start to realise that the most common hat people wore in the wild west was a bowler hat. Was it? Yeah, the Stetson wasn't very popular at all. That was something that was popularised by Hollywood. Wow. And the reason that part of the reason it was popularised by Hollywood is because it always used to be the case that for the viewers, the guy with the white hat was the goody and the bloke with the black hat was the baddie. You can't do that if everyone's wearing bowler hats. <laughs> but you look at photographs of people from the Wild West, you know, you look at Billy the Kid and all, they're all wearing bowler hats. It, mm. it's that that interests me. I mean, someone told me last week that we are, you know, the sex pistol the release of sex pistols, God save the Queen. Is closer in time to the end of the Second World War than it is to now. Yeah, look at your face. That that's exactly yeah. the reaction. This is the this is the kind of thing that I suddenly think, oh my god. And then you think, yeah. do you realise that when God Save the Queen came out in 1977, which was Queen Silver Jubilee, that was the same year Star Wars came out as well. 
that was the year that they that was the last public execution by a, a private execution, judicial execution, I should say, behind closed doors, by guillotine. They were still chopping people's heads off in France then. And you know, when you start thinking about things like, you know, Nicholas Parsons is older than sliced bread. <laughs> he was born before sliced bread was invented. He's also older than Anne Frank. Sure. <laughs> He's also oh, Anne Frank is something you think of as a historical character, mm. but he was born before Anne Frank. You know, it, it's when you start looking at those sorts of things, the fact that, you know, when the pyramids were built, there were still mammoths wandering around. Wow. I think those are the sorts of things that, that fascinated me most in the QI. I mean, yeah, there are some great facts um, that we've been unearthed over the years, but the thing that always gets me is, oh my God, I never realised that's when the Aztec era was and what was going on in Europe at the same time as the Aztecs were mm. doing this and, and or that that was going on at the same time as this or we are further from that than, than we are from this and... There's uh, a guy called Lev Perikian, who's a uh, uh, musician, composer. He did a thing the other day where he worked out that we were the, it was only a couple of weeks ago, we worked out the exact distance from when George Orwell wrote 1984. We were exactly the same distance from the publication of 1984 as he was when he wrote it. Yeah, uh, there were people doing this, and there's another guy called Roger Marsden, wonderful guy, musician again. Um, he's just writing an article at the moment. I know he's, he's done a couple of things before on this whole, mortality maths, this, this, this idea that we don't realise when things take place on the continuum of time. Mm. Uh, and, and that fascinates me. Mm. That really fascinates me, the fact that you think, when did that happen? It's like, oh, another one. Um, the, last, the last execution that the public could go and watch in Britain, so the last public hanging, you could have gone there with a tube. Really? Because the tube, the first, first part of the tube network opened two years before the last public <laughs> hanging. Mm. Yeah. And the last public execution by guillotine in Paris, where the public could go and watch someone having their head chopped off, was seen by Christopher Lee, the actor. He saw it when he was a 17-year-old student. He was in Paris. Whether that affected his choice of career, I have no <laughs> idea. He <laughs> like, spent most of his time playing you know, sort of Dracula and people like this. But, but yeah, it's, it, you suddenly realise that there are people alive now who are rooted, their past is rooted in stuff that we think of as ancient history, and it's not. That, to me, is, is just fascinating. I'd love to somehow plot all these things yeah, up visually, on continuity, but, some, some sort of way of visualising it. I think if anyone out there does a lot of visual graphs and things, that's a book. That's a book yeah. in the making. Talking of books, um, so One Step Ahead yes. um, is something that I've um, read again recently. Um, I actually read the hardback version, which had a different title. It did, yeah. We had a, It first came out, the book came out, it was called Why Did the Policeman Cross the Road? Yeah. And the idea was that, Haha, it's a nice jokey title, but it was meant to be my my move from being a reactive police officer to being a proactive police officer. That's my crossing the road. Um, the problem was that shops had a real problem figuring out where to stock it. And you'd go into a shop and say, have you got a problem with where, where the police will cross the road? And say, well, try the humour section, yeah. thinking it's a joke book. Or um, or they put it in some dry, dusty section of, of law next to things about the corn laws or, yeah. or the repeal of the... So, you know, it was... Um, it really had a problem. So when they went to do the paperback edition, to come out in hardback initially as well as the policeman across the road. We thought, let's go for a change of title. And uh, yeah, it became one step ahead, notes from the problem solving here. Mm. So there's plenty more there to Yeah, enjoy. but it's the same book. So whichever copy you happen to come across, it's exactly the same book, just a different title. Yeah. Um, the final part of the interview then, then Stephen, we've got four of our pertinent poses that we put to all of our guests. Sure. So um, number one, what advice would you give to your younger self? To my younger self, um, I think the main advice I'd give to my younger self is 
for God's sake, stop being an arsehole. Pay attention to the teacher. Stop being quite so self-centered. We get some bloody exams stop on you about, about dinosaurs. Yeah, stop being oh god, the dinosaurs. Don't we start that? Yeah. Um, yeah, in case you're wondering what that reference is in this bit, um, I um, I've always been obsessed with dinosaurs. I'm still obsessed with dinosaurs. Uh, I know a lot about it, I know, and and I read every single book that came out. And when my teachers tried to tell me one thing about dinosaurs, which I knew to be wrong, it, it was it all based on an illustration on a board um, of what was quite clearly a Brachiosaurus, which is a, a long-necked dinosaur, very different looking from most long-necked dinosaurs, and the fact that the neck went up sort of vertically, sort of 90 degrees to the body, whereas most long-necked dinosaurs, it ran parallel to the ground, same as the tail. Quite clearly a Brachiosaurus, and he was calling it a Brontosaurus, which I also had to point out to him, it's not called a Brontosaurus anymore, it's called an Apatosaurus, because Brontosaurus has been kind of discredited. And, um, and he argued and argued, and I got in trouble, and I had to go see the headmaster and all these sorts of things. But um, yeah, it got so bad one day, he said, if you're so damn clever, come out and teach the class. So I did. I walked, I'm kind of in one about eight or nine. I stood out in front of the class. I told them about some really interesting new finds, and the kids were absolutely wrapped by it. And you can see the panic in the teacher's face. We come back to talking about earlier on before the podcast. We were talking about one of my favourite standouts being Greg Davis, because he draws on real life and he talks about his teaching experience. This was a Greg Davis moment. This was him standing there thinking, "I've lost control. Yeah. I've thought I'm going to teach this kid a lesson. You stand at the front and teach the lesson." So I'm doing it really confidently, standing at the front. Oh yeah, telling you all about the latest finds and the stuff they've been discovering. And it was just around the time as well when. People were starting to realise that they weren't slow-moving, lumbering, walnut brain-sized monsters. You know, they were actually dynamic, fast-moving, probably warm-blooded creatures. Uh, and and he'd lost control of the class because they were listening to me and enjoying it. So, like, all right, we've had enough of that. Sit down. Sit down. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, yeah, that was the sort of kid I was. So the advice I would be is, yeah, for God's sake, get some exams under your belt because the problem is you you, you do a job like the police and you learn an extraordinary number of skills. And you read a lot of books and you meet some of the most amazing people and you learn from them. And then you leave, you know, you hand your warrant card in on your final day and you walk out of Scotland Yard and you shut the door. And then you suddenly think, well, what am I going to do now? And you suddenly realize that everything you've got is, has been experiential learning. Everything you've got has been from what you've done and you've got no bits of paper. So you start applying for jobs and of course, well, you haven't got a degree. Mm. Everyone's got a degree now. And um, yeah, so, so those bits of paper are important. Well, that goes back to our point about measurement. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. It's, it's I mean, it's, it's a ridiculous measurement. I mean, it's, uh, I'll give you a great example. I, because I just wanted a little sort of like um, hobby job sort of thing, just to bring a little bit of extra money in. A friend of mine who works at uh, a university uh, near where I live said, there's a job going for a communications officer. It doesn't pay a huge amount. It's only about 25,000 a year or something like that, but you'd be brilliant for it. You know, you've written books, you've written QR, you do this. And I said, okay, I'll apply for it. I applied for it. Heard nothing. And when I bumped into the same person a while later, he said, why didn't you apply for that job? Bloody God, it's an idiot. He can't string two sentences together. He can't do this, can't do that. We're thinking about getting rid of him. I said, I did apply. So he went to see the HR people. He said, oh, no, no. We, we literally looked at it, looked at his qualifications and weeded me before looking at the second page and seeing the, the list of my sort of accomplishments. And, and, and that is a story I hear over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, if you've got a lot of people applying for a job, you know, and I fully understand that HR departments are overloaded and they've got to do everything, but, you know, they're, they're literally looking at the, do you meet the entrance qualifications? No, bang, chuck it in the bin and don't look at anything else. I don't give people a chance even to come to an interview. So I suppose, yeah, that would probably be my, you know, that they are sort of, much as I hate the fact that that's a measurement of someone's ability, those pieces of paper are important if you want to get a job.
So I think that's... Um, yeah, I agree, it's ridiculous. That's probably the one thing I would say. Mm. It's the system that exists and you've got to work within it at the moment. Well, perhaps as a similar answer to my, to, to my next question then, or, or that conclusion is, which is if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? So I think with industry, that's just, you know, the comms world in general. Banish one thing. Banish one thing. Oh, that's a tricky one, isn't it? Because I'm, I'm not someone who thinks that... I'm, I'm quite a libertarian, really. I don't like the idea of banning things. Um... Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a really tricky one for me to answer because I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm very much of the generation and very much of the sort of um, attitude, you know, moderation in things and, mm. and um, you know, I'm, I'm a great believer in free speech. I mean, everyone should have the right to free speech. And I'm already starting to see that being encroached upon. I'm already mm. starting to see that some people can't say certain things. No, no, they should be allowed to say them and they should face the vitriol and they should face the judgment of the people who hear them saying it, but they should have the right to say it. Mm. Um, so, yeah, what would I ban? What would I ban? I'll come back to that one. Okay. There must be some things I hate. There must be. <laughs> <laughs> Any... Oh, people in parking disabled spaces. That one bugs me. Ah, that, yeah. really, that really bugs me. Yeah. Um, yeah, just because it's, it's, uh, it's such an... It's such an awful thing to do. It's such a. It's such a. It's unnecessary. Well, it's it's a separation. You see, a lot of a lot of the time with crime, when people commit what they think is, to, they don't even think it's a crime. They don't even think it's it's a misdemeanor. Even they just think to themselves, "I need to get to the shops. That's a parking space. I'm going to use it. It's me, me, me," and and they never attach a victim to it. I mean, the, the, one of the most powerful things they've done in recent years in policing again, it's something that suffered a lot because of um, resources availability and things like that is, is where you put the victim and the and the the offender in the same room mm. and they have a controlled interview where that person talks about how the crime you know like being burgled makes them feel mm. because what it does is it, it, it puts a human face to the victim mm. because when a burglar gets into a house they're normally in and out within about 10 minutes and they don't even think about a person they just think right that i can get 50 quid for that 10 quid for that they don't even think about the human impact. You put them in an interview environment where they meet the person they burgled, and they they, they can relate to that. Oh God, this bloke looks a bit like my granddad, or they, you know, this person's crying, and, and it has a hugely powerful effect on that person then wanting to commit crime in the future. And things like um, disabled parking bays, to them it's just a space. But someone coming in who's got a wheelchair or something like that now can't go shopping, or can't do this, or can't do that. Um, I think part of the problem is that we don't. We don't tap. We don't tap into that human thing enough. There's there's um, an initiative they tried in some places in America where they instead of just a, a sort of symbol for a person in wheelchair, meaning disabled, which is what we tend to do in the UK, they actually put up photographs of military veterans in wheelchairs and missing limbs, saying things like "Think of me, keep it free." Mm-hmm. Hugely powerful. And people did not park in those spaces because American they they tapped into the national psyche and they know how Americans feel about veterans anyway. But they put a face to the person that they belongs to mm. and humanized it and created a potential victim for them to see the drivers and the drivers wouldn't park there anymore there should be a lot more of that sort of stuff going on to teach people you know this isn't just you're not the most important person in the world you can walk from the car park or the parking bay five down the road this person can and if you can put an extra layer of emotion onto it and look they lost a leg trying to keep you safe that's very powerful there should mm. be a lot more of that yeah, yeah i agree i've heard you i think you mentioned that in your um TED Talk, actually, that burglars don't want to meet you. They don't want to bump into you. 
because it makes it very real. Well, most burglaries happen, domestic burglaries happen during the daytime because they know you're at work. Yeah. They don't want to meet you. That's awkward. Yeah. I mean, apart from that, there may be violence or they may be caught and things like that. They may, it, it, even if they get away scot-free, no one's hurt. There's still the fact that you're going to be able to identify them. So most com- uh, domestic burglaries happen during the day. Most commercial ones happen at night when the shop's empty. So, yeah, burglars don't want to meet you. Of course they don't. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, there's a lot of power invested in that um, humanising the crime. Even something as simple as the smiley or sad face on the speed cameras, I believe, has been proven numerous times. To oh, be it has, effective. yeah. Smiley face on the speed cameras, much more effective than just putting the numbers up. Mm. Yeah. And things like, you know, the watching eyes and things like that people yeah. use now. Um, there's an experiment going on at the moment between Ogilvy, um, you know, um, uh, Ogilvy One and Rory Sutherland's little group. Mm. They were doing, last time I spoke to Rory, they were doing an initiative in Ealing in West London where they were using photographs of babies' faces baby's eyes right. on the backs of premises that were being burgled a lot to see if that had an impact. And the initial um, results they were getting back was that it was working very well. Wow. Um, I'd have to talk to Rory to find out how well it worked. But certainly, um, yeah, as soon as you create that emotional bond, mm-hmm. uh, Professor Richard Wiseman did an experiment a few years ago where he threw a load of wallets around the streets. Um, uh, and they, they had like discontinued credit cards of them and things like this. Normal paraphernalia you'd get in a wallet. Um, but in half the wallets, he put a photograph of a baby. Nearly all the photographs that had a picture of a baby got handed into the police. Really? And almost none of the others did. So you suddenly created a, a link between the person who finds the wallet and the fact that this isn't just a piece of faux leather with some bits in it. This belongs to a person. Oh, they got a baby. Bang. It's humanised the victim again. Mm. That sort of stuff is very powerful. I'd like to see a lot more stuff being done yeah. in that area. Good answer. Are there any books that you would recommend? Um, but, 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 um, uh, Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow is yeah, the Bible. Classic. Absolutely amazing. Thaler and Sunstein, the original Nudge book, is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Um, slightly out of the normal group of books, but the original problem-oriented policing book by uh, Herman Goldstein is still in print. Some of it's a bit dated now, but the the... The science behind what he's talking about, about pulling problems apart and getting down to the, the root causes of things, is mm. staggeringly good, and he writes very well. Mm. Um, yeah, they're, they're, those three are, are the sort of um, the trilogy for me of, of ones that I kept going back to time and time again and uh, reading. But there's others, there's like Leonard, hey, perhaps his surname, Lodinov, uh, The Drunkard's Walk, that's a great mm. book. Oh, there's just so many. My shelves are full at home with this. Um, um, I mean the early, the early, um, uh, the Freakonomics books. I love. Oh the yes. yeah, 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 yeah. I, I got to know. Um, he's Dubner. Stephen Dubner. Yeah, mm. Stephen Stephen Dubner, who's the he's the sort of writing hat for the Freakonomics books because the, the the two Stephens, one of them's the analyst who found all the data, dug all the information out. He's the researcher, and Stephen Dubner is the person who actually put the books together. And I met Dubner. I was we were very lucky. We would, I, apart from work on QI, I used to work on a Radio Four show. QI Sister Show on Radio 4, the Museum of Curiosity, and that was the better show to work on for someone like me, to be honest, because whereas QI is an entertainment show, it's basically an improv- improvisation show where you bring comedians on, give them a really sort of strange question with no obvious answer and let them riff on it. You know, yeah. um, The Museum of Curiosity, the whole idea was you bring in four people, you sit them around the desks, and you ask them to bring in something that they think is amazing. Um, it's, it's the entire antithesis of, of things like you know, Room 101 or Grumpy Old Men. We wanted to make a show that was all about the brilliant things. 
And um, we're always looking for guests. And we usually had someone on from the sciences, someone from the arts, usually a comedian as well, entertainment. Um, you know, over the years, we had people like Buzz Aldrin on there. It was absolutely amazing mm. to sit there on a panel show, you know, with wow. the second man on the moon. But we also had Jimmy Wales on, who created Wikipedia. We had uh, we had David Frost, David Frost, on his very last appearance before he died a couple of weeks later. Uh, we had some amazing people on there. And one of them was Stephen Dubner. We, we happened to read that he was in London at the time, asked him if he'd come on the show. Great. Afterwards in the green room, chatting to him, gave him a copy of... Um, the book wasn't published then, but I gave him a copy of some of the stuff I'd written and things like that. We, we became mates. And so... Um, I did some stuff for the Freakonomics podcast. He very kindly did a cover quote for my book. Um, but the Freakonomics books and, uh, and the whole series of things afterwards, like, you know, um, uh, what's the one he did? Um, um, went to rob a bank and things like that. They're, they're, just, they're just really, really good examples of how data, when used correctly, mm. can give you staggering results. And when used incorrectly, can lead you to completely the wrong conclusions. Great books, mm. great books. Great. Well, well, we'll link to all of those on the um, podcast homepage. Now, we always dedicate every show to someone and we bestow or hospital pass that honour, depending on your view, to our guest, who we also ask to give their reasons. So, Stephen, oh, so I've you. got to dedicate this one, right? Okay. Please. Well, I'd say what I'm going to do, it's kind of a traditional thing, but I think I'm going to dedicate it to my late dad. Because he would have enjoyed this. Uh, he was very much a critical thinker. He was a bit arty-farty like me. He liked, he liked writing things. He was always questioning things. He was always asking. Uh, it made him a very good detective. And like I said, he, be, he became pretty much the Devon and Cornwall's go-to person for homicide um, uh, at the time he was alive. But he also died phenomenally young. He died at the age of 51, um, just after he retired. And But if it wasn't for him, I probably wouldn't have my love of writing because he wrote a lot as well and he sent stuff off to newspapers and magazines all the time halfway through writing his first novel when he died um i probably wouldn't have my love of art i certainly wouldn't have had my police career if i hadn't been for that drunken bet and him pushing me in that direction um so yeah I, I, he seems to be the most appropriate person that this should be aimed at nothing of this would have happened without him wonderful and what was his name michael michael Colvin. michael yeah mike colden fantastic he sounds like a great man he was. He was a good chap. He was a good chap. So, as a final call to action, please, everyone, if you've enjoyed this episode, head over to the podcast homepage where we'll share links to some of Stephen's brilliant talks, links to the books discussed, uh, the numerous books that Stephen has written, um, which I can highly recommend, Stephen's website, um, everything else that we've referenced in the last hour or so. Any other tips on how people can get more Stephen Colgan? No, I, I, I don't. I, 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 you'd have to check Pokemon Go to see what my rating is. Yeah. Oh no, I'm all over the place. I, yeah. I am all over the, because because I'm, I'm interested in everything. I am all over the place. I've usually got my finger in about twenty different sort of pies at any one time. So yeah, yeah. Just I mean, the point is, my name is spelled weird. Mm. I've got a really weird spelling of Stephen. You just put that in. You'll find me. Yeah, simple as that. So that's S T E V Y N. Yeah, yeah. It is. It, it is. It is. I have to say, not my real name. I, I'm a Stephen with a PH. But when I first started looking at getting published and things like that, I, there was a at the time. I don't know if he still is. At the time, there was a TV doctor in America called Steve Colvin, and all the hits went to him. Right. And I thought, there's got to be a way that I can spell my name differently. I couldn't figure it out. But at the time, I was working on a book for the Cornish Language Council right. of Cornish folk 
um, legends, which were then translated into the Cornish language. And um, I had my own tame bard. I had my own translator to do the Cornish bits for me called Tony Hack. And I said, is there a way within the Cornish language orthography that you could spell Stephen differently than PH? And he goes, well, there is. He says, I said, brilliant. What would it be? He goes, it would be S-T-E-V-E-N. <laughs> and I said, that's just the other spelling of Stephen. And he said, well, <laughs> oh, yeah, I suppose there is really. I said, ah, there is another way, he said, because in Cornish, see, see people don't say, in, if someone's got a Cornish accent, they don't say Stephen, they say Stephen. It's in. It's an in sound. He said, and if that's the case, it could be a Y. Yeah. So I put Stephen into uh, Google. Uh, other search engines are available. And um, yeah, but use there was only one other Stephen anywhere who was a, a Native American uh, Indian called Stephen Ironfeather. And I thought, we're unlikely to get confused. <laughs> so the great thing about using that as a professional name is it's actually my name. So people will say Stephen and I'll, I'll respond to it. It's not like poor old, you know, Jim Moyer, who works under the name of Vic Reeves, and everyone calls him Vic, but yeah. he's actually called Jim backstage. Or, or Bill Bailey. Bill Bailey's first name's Mark. Wow. So if his parents come and watch the show, they go, Mark, and he has to answer it. Everyone's going, really yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's actually my name. Right. It's just spelt differently, but because it's an unusual spelling, it's a bit of problem solving again. Yeah. I get the first like 10 pages of Google if you, if you put me in. So. Yeah, well, I'm sure marketers can make a uh, conclusion around positioning with, with, with that spelling oh, and yes. brand identity designers. Uh, the, Go to town on that one. So fantastic. So thank you so much for joining us. Stephen. You're welcome. It's been a, an absolute pleasure. And thank you to everyone who's willingly let their ears be bent by us for this extended episode. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can find us easily online or email hello at calltoaction.co. Yeah, hey, hey.